So the phrase recount was specifically also added to this fake quote to make it seem more topical. Moral of the story is don't believe everything you see on the internet. <laughs> Hi and welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And on today's episode, we are continuing our month-long discussion on film noir. Our episode today is on the 1948 film Key Largo. Before we do that, uh, Thomas, what have we kind of talked about this month about film noir? What's some of the stuff we've kind of covered? Well, we've talked a lot about the style because this is a this is kind of interesting genre that we're diving into. A lot of the genres we explore are more thematically tied than stylistically, but this is this is a genre that's really all related through its style and so we talked about you know german expressionism a lot of the early noir films were fueled by german directors and german dps yeah who were coming over and bringing that style of um, light and dark high contrast very interesting lighting um you know sometimes lighting that bordered on the abstract and and things that were very low lit and often you know dark which is where the t- the name comes from um, but then thematically, we, we also talked about crime, uh, not necessarily detectives. You know, this is something like a detective noir is a specific subgenre, but yeah. uh, but you don't always have to have a detective to be a noir film, but you pretty much always have to have some sort of crime or transgression. It is still a very transgressive mm-hmm. genre. You also have like moral am- moral ambiguity. Uh, where these morally flawed characters are kind of the the prominent characters in the noir film, you have things like a femme fatale, or sometimes you have these kind of the two, like uh, two female characters who kind of represent different points or different perspectives of the era, which I think is is prominent in this film. Uh, and usually, mm-hmm. this one's a little bit different today. Usually, it's an urban setting when mm-hmm. where a noir takes place, and. And also a big component is that noir was coming out of the time where started when World War II was happening, and then it became a big kind of genre in a post-World War II era. And mm. that's, I think, very important for today's episode. So yeah, so I'm going to let you, this is your movie. Why did you want to pick Key Largo? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting that you went straight to kind of calling out the difference because, between most of the noir films being urban and this one not being because Key Largo, which was made in 1948 is an early entry in a very specific subgenre of noir and crime and and detective literature storytelling which is it's always been very interesting to me in that it is such a strong subgenre it's something that has survived in literature from Ernest Hemingway to current day there's um, a lot of authors that work within this and that is the Florida noir which is a very bold and, and, and very specific genre um there's a lot of writers currently like carl hyacin who works in um like exclusively in florida noir there's also a, a writer um randy wayne wright who writes exclusively like florida-based stuff and it's all about and i think that the tie is it, it ties back to why early detective fiction was almost always set in in los angeles because you always have these mm-hmm. stories of someone like earlier it was someone coming to like sunny california looking for looking for the sunshine and and easy times and finding that la was actually seedy and and dark and and dangerous Mm -hmm. and once people got to know oh that's what la is like i think it became florida 
was this place where you could go to escape the crime. You could go to escape whatever demons were behind you. And so you do have a lot of stories where somebody's coming somewhere, especially these characters with kind of dark past who just want to give it all up and live on a shack and, and fish. And, and they can never really get away from it. And and that started, you know, Hemingway had um, To Have and Have Not, which was a, a film with Humphrey Bogart, who we're going to be seeing today. So, yeah, it's a really interesting subgenre within this genre that we've been talking about. And it's it's always been interesting to me, as, especially as we're talking about visuals. Yeah. Is how you can still relate those visuals of like a dark and gritty Los Angeles to something like the Florida Keys we're gonna see here yeah that's the that's the big thing is like um noir isn't usually seen as like a very bright uh like a bright setting if that makes sense and with florida that's mm-hmm. what you get i think with this movie and we'll discuss later is it, it starts that way but it, be, it slowly becomes some or quickly becomes something more in terms of the visual style mm-hmm. but yeah and the thing is like it's the florida noir genre has like transitioned to film but not mm-hmm. not in a big way I think the most recent one we had, uh, we had Live by Night, which was an adaptation of a Dennis Lehane novel that's set in yeah. Florida, but it didn't do particularly well. But uh, And then you get like Wild Things, you know, with uh, Neff Campbell <laughs> and Denise Richards, which I just watched this month, which what a wi- what a ride. Um, and then like <laughs> Body Heat in the 80s, which was a big kind of thing. Night Moves, another from my love, that's about an LA detective who goes to Florida the Florida Keys. Well, so I like, mean, you know, there's there. You can also debate if if De Palma's uh, Scarface is is a Florida that's, noir. That's true. That's true. You could. But today, today we're going to be talking about Key Largo. Key Largo was released in 1948. Uh, it's available to stream on Prime wherever you get your movies from. It's not really anywhere free, as far as I can tell. The cast. It's a it's a star studded cast. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, Lauren Bacall, Lionel Barrymore, Claire Trevor. And uh, as far as crew, it was written and directed by John Huston. He worked on the script with the uh, Academy Award winning writer Richard Brooks. And a little tie into the rest of our month is this film was shot by Carl Freund, who was a German cinematographer who had previously worked with director Fritz Lang on his film Metropolis. So once again, mm-hmm. we've got that German expressionism influence here. So so Humphrey Bogart stars as um, Major Frank McLeod. He's a, a veteran of World War II, and he's coming to the Florida Keys. We're not really sure what to escape. He wants to um, come down to the Keys. He's He grew up around boats, and, and he's been living in cities and kind of drifting around since the end of the war, and he's decided now he wants to come down to the Florida Keys and settle. And... Um, He's been in contact with the father and uh, widow of a army buddy of his, one of the one of the soldiers. He was a commanding officer for a soldier who passed away during World War II. But he's been talking with that soldier's father and his widow, played by uh, Lionel Barrymore and Lauren Bacall, and they've told him on his way down through the Florida Keys to come stop by their hotel that they operate in Key Largo. And when he arrives. We find that the hotel, even though it is shut down, it is in the off season. Uh, it seems to be currently inhabited by some unexpected guests who are soon revealed to be gangsters on the run on their way to Cuba, headed up by famed gangster Johnny Rocco, played by the probably the most famous gangster of all time, Edward G. Robinson. Phenomenal cast. And then and then you have Claire Trevor, who plays like a, a washed up lounge singer who has been who is like with the gangsters, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so Johnny Rocco, we come to find out that Johnny Rocco has been in jail for a while, but he has recently gotten out and is fleeing to Cuba. And so, yeah, Claire Trevor plays Gay Dawn, who was previously his his girlfriend, who has been kind of re-enlisted now that he's free again to to come back with him. Now, is he? Because there's look, because it's like, is he going back to America, or is he going to Cuba then America? Because like the whole plan is for him to return to America as this kind of big thing. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like he's going to Cuba. He's going to Cuba yeah, first, and then we'll go to back Cuba to America. To get, a, get some power back. After getting a bunch was, of money down was, Cuba. You know, this, this was 1948. The gangsters were running Cuba at that point. So you want my initial thoughts on the movie? Yeah. So I had, weirdly, before Thomas picked this, I had watched this like a month ago for the first time ever, or two <laughs> months ago for the first time. I was like, well, I rewatched it. Because I, I like to rewatch these if, if possible. It got better for me the second time when watching it and especially again mm-hmm. with the show when we're looking at it in terms of like genre and all that it makes you look for things that you don't really look for your first time out so mm-hmm. like this time specifically i looked more because i was like oh, i don't remember this being like visually like a noir but when watching it this time it very much is mm-hmm. it's 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 interesting because of how houston who again we didn't mention like john houston also directed the Maltese Falcon, which is considered one of the early uh, traditional noir films with Bogart. The style definitely much like it, prog- it, it progresses. It's weird. It very much reminded me of, which is not a noir, but 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Of how Celine Lamette would like progress as the film progresses, the visual style changes mm-hmm. with how he places the camera, how he lights it. And Key Largo does something similar, but it's in the lighting where like the early part of the film, it's daytime, it's bright. And then it becomes, oh, it's getting dark outside because of the hurricane and they're all going to be locked in. So it's all electricity based. But then they lose power and then it's all lamplight. And it's, it's like the light's getting like less and less. And then sometimes it's just getting like pitch black, essentially, where it's mm-hmm. all in shadow. So that's what I loved about it. Yeah, and it's just it's it's a really like it's a, it's a showcase for a lot of great actors when mm-hmm. when when watching it. So so, yeah, those are my. Those are my thoughts. What about you? Because when when's the last time you saw this? Oh, it had been very long time, probably since I I had gotten into kind of Bogart's detective stuff. I mean, this, though this isn't a detective movie, but kind of Bogart's noir career. Um, when I was in high school, uh, this was one I visited. I'm also a huge Lionel Barrymore fan. I I always appreciate him, and uh, and as I had gotten into Bogart in high school, I watched all of his work that he did with Lauren Bacall, who was his real life wife. Uh, mm-hmm. And they just had crazy chemistry together, even in this film, which I yeah. I think like, I'm glad they put her in it. I think she is heavily yeah. underutilized, but it's still smart to put her in it because that chemistry is just like, boom, palpable. Um, so, you know, even in a role that doesn't actually have that much to do. Yeah, it's a different dynamic for them. Yeah. And if anybody else was in there, that character would feel even more underutilized because we wouldn't have that chemistry um, that is there. Uh, but it's interesting. So if we'll, we'll go in a little bit to to the how it got made, because it's interesting you brought up Twelve Angry Men because this was adapted from a play. Um, probably fairly easy to tell because it's could be set in all one location. It, it's one of those movies it you watch be. and you're like, oh, it's it's meant to be all in this one room, and they've they've expanded it beyond there. Um, but yeah, Houston and Brooks adapted the film from a 1939 play by Maxwell Anderson. Um, in Anderson's original version, the gangsters were Mexican banditos 
and McLeod was a veteran or was a deserter of the Mexican-American War. Um, as a respected playwright and experienced screenwriter, most of Anderson's plays had, had been adapted previously, were adapted very faithfully. But uh, obviously between 1939 and 1948, something pretty, pretty relevant happened in the world that made it just, you know, it called for, for an update. And World War II was kind of perfectly there to be utilized as an update. Mm-hmm. But in changing the villains of the story from banditos to American gangsters, Houston and Brooks heavily based the character of Rocco on Al Capone, who had retired to Florida and died of syphilis just one year earlier. So they were playing up on that kind of the disgraced gangster who's been banished to florida which is you know not a not a uh, glamorous metropolitan area for a gangster yeah so after finishing his script houston fully intended to shoot this film on location um he handed the script into the studio and started scouting hotels in florida um he admitted to having to edit the script after his location scout because uh, several scenes in the film involved characters seeking shel- shelter in a storm cellar in the hotel. And while scouting a hotel in Florida, he asked the owner to show him to the storm cellar. And the owner said, uh, sir, if I dig three feet into the ground, I'm going to hit the ocean. There's no such thing as a storm cellar in Florida. <laughs> so he had to go back and, and change some of the film to have them uh, mostly just be in the lobby. Uh, but while he was out on his scout, Warner mm-hmm. Brothers was reading over the script and finding out about his plans to shoot on location, and they said absolutely not. They had just spent $3 million for Houston to shoot the treasure of this year, Madre, on location, and uh, yeah. they, they were over it. They were done. They were not happen- allowing that to happen. They, uh, they immediately called Houston back. He was required to shoot only on the studio, and everything in the film was shot on the studio except for the opening shot of the Florida Causeway, which was shot. They did not allow Houston to go on the shoot for it and just sent Freund to to shoot it himself. Wow. What were what were some of your favorite scenes here? Well, thinking about this this movie too, in terms of like favorite scenes, like you said, it is based on a play. So a lot mm. of these scenes are long. Yeah. Especially yeah. early on. So I guess I'll start early. One thing that popped out to me, because this is a big kind of the character arc of of the three of the three kind of the trio of Barrymore, Bacall, and Bogart of the scene when Barrymore when Bogart's telling them about their uh, his his son Barrymore's son and Bacall's dead husband of when they're like like oh he told me this or he told me that like I know this place very well and it's kind of this like Bogart becomes or they see Bogart as the surrogate son or like surrogate love interest for. Bacall like they're trying to substitute Barrymore's dead son for Bogart and so that's what that scene kind of establishes the whole like how they're gonna view Bogart and Bogart's Mm -hmm. really gonna like not meet their expectations a lot of the time you get the impression that they 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 don't go too much into what their previous relationship is I I like to think that they were kind of pen pals you know they've been writing back and forth a lot because they they seem to kind of immediately be like, oh, yeah, we know you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but but we are told that they heard a lot about him from, you know, their their son uh, slash husband as well. But, yeah, they you know, he's not this war hero anymore. He that he was presented as this courageous war hero. And, and as he tells us since then, he's been uh, just kind of working dead end jobs and floating from city to city since he got back and and so yeah they they never they're they're never disappointed in him you know but he he yeah he definitely doesn't isn't at first the man that they thought he was going to be 
Yeah. I think he was a newspaper guy. I think he said he went went and did like a, he, he did like a newspaper job before the war and then after the war he's like, "Yeah, I'm done with this. I don't mm-hmm. want to do this anymore." So yeah, but also in, in that scene too when they're talking about the sun, it's when which is a very kind of big point of when they're talking about like where he's buried at. Bogart's like giving details of like where the sun is buried at. And this is something that kind of hit me and the, you kind of see it in like say saving the opening of saving private Ryan was just debated of, is it good or is it not the opening and ending, but it's, it's a reality check of think of like the amount of people uh, like families who had like loved ones that were lost in world war two or really any war. And they were buried overseas because their bodies couldn't be brought back to America. So it's this idea of these families who never get to go see like their son or their husband's like grave. And it's that part where Barrymore is just like, oh, one day we'll go there. And it's like, this guy's in a wheelchair and came like, ba- like barely get upstairs. And you're going to mm. like send him overseas to see his son's grave. It's kind of like, it's it's very like saddening moment in a way mm. where it's like, he's always thinks about somebody can't even visit his grave. And that was, that was probably a real thing. And that's, and that's like right off the bat, you get, you're like, oh, this is not sunny Florida where everybody's happy. It, I mean, right off the bat, you're like, there, there are yeah. troubles here. There are sad people here. It's, it's just the same as anywhere else. It's just pretty outside. You'd be surprised how much I know about you both. For instance, inside your wedding ring, Nora, there's an inscription. Evermore. That's right. And you, Mr. Temple, you remember telling George what this hollow is above the upper lip? Before he was born, you said, he knew all the secrets of life and death. And then at the moment of his birth, an angel came and put his finger right here and sealed his lips. I remember that. Yep. He couldn't have been more than seven years old when I told him that fairy story. What's it like where he's buried? Just crosses on a slope. High up there's what's left of a church. You can see a river from where George is. I'd like to pay a visit to that place. Yeah, I would. Nora, maybe we'll do just that. Go to Italy and see where George is buried. What about you? What's one you got? Um, I think the introduction of Rocco is is great because yeah, <laughs> you're he, he's not introduced until about twenty minutes in, and you know he's up there. Like they they you know they he, uh, McLeod is interacting with the henchmen. And they keep kind of going up and being like, he wants this, he wants that, he wants gay, he wants to see you, and and so you 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 know that the ball, you even you know the first time watching this, you get the idea like these are tough guys, and and the boss is, is upstairs, uh, even as McLeod is still kind of feeling it out, and and then the first shot we get of Rocco, he's like in the bathtub with a cigar. It it goes to show, you know, we were talking about Houston being inspired by Capone. A lot of this film is a about kind of the the downfall of of the the gangster of of yeah. the 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 mob hit, uh, boss um not ne- necessarily like the downfall in in ways we've seen previously you know kind of like a goodfellas or it's like oh everything's falling apart around me but but more about the like going out with a whimper instead of a bang like this yeah. idea of this guy who has kind of fallen into obscurity he's not as well known as he used to be and now he's he's just kind of stuck in this like kind of crappy hotel 
Yeah, even his henchmen don't even know how big he was. Like, there's a there's a scene where like, oh, is that true? Were you that big? And he's like, yeah, he was. He was that big. Mm-hmm. Like when like his his the young guys don't even know who he is. They're just being hired for a job. And and yeah, and then it kind of goes into the whole like when he's uh, it's the scene that goes with that the the shave mm-hmm. scene when it's like yeah. this huge close up on uh, Robinson's face. And he's just like. They forgot about me. I helped them all out. I helped them fix their elections, do all this, and and when it came, like when they need when when I needed them, they weren't there. Yeah, he's a very like I mean, he's mm-hmm. in a way he's a broken guy, um, who is again it, it hates that he has fallen into obscurity. He'd give you a left eye to nail me, wouldn't you? Huh? <laughs> you can see the headlines, can't you? Local deputy captured Johnny Rocco. Your picture had been all the papers. You might even get the tell on the newsreel how you pulled it off. Yeah. Well, listen, Hick. I was too much for any big city police force to handle. They tried, but they couldn't. Put the United States government have been a rap on me. Yeah, and they won't make it stick. Oh, you Hick. I'll be back pulling strings to get guys elected mayor and governor before you ever get a ten-buck raise. Yeah. How many of those guys in office owe everything to me? I made them. Yeah, I made them just like a like a tailor makes a suit of clothes. I take a nobody, see? Teach him what to say. Get his name in the papers. Now, paper is campaign expenses. Dish out a lot of groceries and coal. Get my boys to bring the voters out. And then count the votes over and over again till they added up right and he was elected. Yeah. And what happened? Did you remember when the going got tough? When the heat was on? No, he didn't want to. All he wanted was to save his own dirty necks. Yeah, that's enough of that. Give me a towel, will you? Yeah. Public enemy, he calls me. Yeah, but Houston, she, like I said, in terms of, like I said, the, the, the noir style, of that, like, again, that close up of Robinson is just so almost uncomfortable how close it is when they're shooting it when the, mm. the shave scene like it's very like and not i'm not saying it's a bad way but it's a very like, off-putting thing because what what thing about robinson in this movie that i saw this time is how rocco is a time bomb waiting to explode that's what it feels mm. like it reminds i was i was reminded of the hitchcock thing of like a, a hitchcock thing of a uh show the like show the time bomb under the table and you get suspense Mm-hmm. Don't show it and get surprised. And I think with Robinson is that he's he's the suspense part. He's the time bomb we're watching to see is he going to explode and kill someone. Yeah, yeah. My my absolute favorite scene in in the movie is when the the second cop shows up after the hurricane is gone, uh-huh. and Robinson's just kind of like stalking behind him the whole time. Like yeah, he, he goes into this mode where he's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm Henry Brown. But but if you watch the blocking of the scene, he's constantly like right behind the cop and you just know he's ready to shoot him in a second. And he's got this look on his face like it's, it's just cold. It's like, you ever seen a shark's eyes? Um, <laughs> yeah. And he's got that like, like, especially the, you know, the the officer goes out and he finds his partner dead in the mud. And, and Rocco's just standing there like with his hands behind his back watching the whole thing happen. And then the cop comes running back in and starts yelling at Lionel Barrymore saying that it's his fault. And Rocco's standing back there in the corner the whole time. I think they, they cut to like a close up of him, like, Oh no, what a shame. 
but you're just like oh man he he's so good at playing it cool but like he's he's got probably got his hand on his gun in his coat right now yeah 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 it's a good point like because like when he when the, when the cop walks in and out he's walking him outside he's the both times he walks him outside and then the moment when like his his buddies show up right after that where he's just like keeping it cool until the cop leaves like he he is just this like mm. ready to pull a gun no matter what another the, the scene that kind of made me realize that it's the song for a drink scene where he's telling mm. uh claire trevor is that she needs a drink because she's like having the shakes and he's like sing us a song and then i'll give you a drink and it's just it's the way houston shoots it it's this idea of like you don't know what's going to happen in this moment and it keeps mm-hmm. cutting to like bogart and bacall and barrymore and the henchmen and then robinson not being pleased with what's going on and so it's this idea of like what's going to happen in this scene and it's the constant variable of robinson is what it is that kind of makes mm-hmm. the tension uh really work and the entire movie really not just that scene but the entire movie gee honey you're as mean as can be mean as can be now what does that remind me of well don't you remember that was in a song she used to sing it yeah that's right you know i gave her a first chance took her out of the chorus made her a singer mention that while you're at it why ain't you a singing star instead of a lush gee johnny i didn't mean anything yeah she could have had a future that's right she had everything voice looks plenty of class i was a rage Gee, honey. Now, look, uh, Gary, why don't you give us your old song, hmm? You mean right now? Yeah. I can't. Ah, sure you can. Please, Johnny, don't make me. I won't make you do anything. Tell you what, I got a proposition for you. Now, you sing us your song, you can have a drink. Can I have the drink first? No, the song, then the drink. Without any accompaniment? Now look, uh, do you want a drink or don't you? I, this is my favorite performance of his, uh, f- from his career. I think he's incredible in this. And I think when you watch, especially the climax, so much of this movie is about his journey because so much of the climax is is spent on showing him break like showing him just break yeah. down and, and and lose all his men and lose his courage and and it's ultimately more about i mean there is this kind of mcleod kind of coming back being becoming the hero again and finding his courage but it's it, it's as much about rocco losing his courage as it is mcleod finding his and the hurricane really like intensifies that with like the scene when like the hurricane gets gets worse and he's just like, how bad is it usually here? And, and Barrymore's like, ah, oh, back in 35, this happened. And he's like starting to freak out. And the favorite part of my issues, this is Barrymore. Barrymore starts praying for like the hurricane to kill them all mm-hmm. or specifically kill Robinson. And Robinson just starts like mm-hmm. freaking out. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's done. It's done wonderfully. What, one more favorite scene I want to bring up too. Again, it's gone with the surrogate, kind of the surrogate son type thing with Barrymore and Bacall is when Robinson and Bogart have their first face off when, when Robinson gives him the gun and mm-hmm. he doesn't shoot it. 
shoot him and the sheriff comes in or the, the cop come, the young cop comes in gets the gun shoots at robinson realizes it's empty and then gets killed and barry morris mm-hmm. like oh you knew it was empty you could feel it and he's like mm-hmm. and it's just like this like them trying to reason through because they they want to see him as like or he wants to see him as a son basically that like he was smart enough to not shoot the gun because he knew it was empty and bogart's just like no i was afraid yes but i'm not gonna waste my life over over a johnny rocco it's a kind of this this big question it's a it's a weirdly kind of a continuation of casablanca in a way where rick blaine that bogart plays in casablanca is like a character who doesn't want to stick his neck out for anyone and mm-hmm. then finally does it in the end and this is a similar setup of that frank doesn't want to stick his neck out for anyone because he doesn't want to die for a johnny rocco or whatever but he realizes as the movie goes on that like people like this will continue to exist unless someone stands up against them and he like he has to get his like it's his redemption story in a way yeah no i was just gonna say i think we see this a lot in in the noir genre is this kind of jaded veteran especially yeah you know a lot of these films coming up in the late 40s it was like i i did my time i did my duty I saw so many people die. I made it out. I'm living for me now. Like I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I fulfilled my being valorant. I fulfilled my part of being brave. Now I'm just going to make some money. I might put my, you know, skills that I, I learned over there to use here. But that a lot of that, that genre is that kind of like, I, I, I was a good person there and now it's gone. Like yeah. I, I did it and I saw good people yeah. die. And I'm, I don't need to do that anymore. You knew the gun was empty, didn't you, son? You, you, you could tell by the weight. No, sir, I didn't know. You just didn't have the nerve, Pop. Let's face it. You were a smart fella. What happened to him would have happened to you. It's better to be a live coward than a dead hero. Oh, excuse me. You weren't afraid, son. We all know that. Oh, yes, I was afraid. But that's not why I didn't pull the trigger. What do I care about Johnny Rocco, whether he lives or dies? I only care about me, me and mine. If Rocco wants to come back to America, let him. Let him be president. I fight nobody's battles but my own. I can't see it your way, Frank. Sorry you didn't either. He was a fool. Me die to rid the world of a Johnny Rocco? <laughs> no thanks. If I believed your way, I'd want to be dead too. It's true. You are a coward. What you're saying now is only to save your coward's face. Well, Nora, maybe Frank's right. Maybe he's right. All right, so a little bit of on-set life. The uh, the entire, the, the shoot took 78 days. Um, like I said, entirely on the, the back lot. They built the uh, exterior of the hotel next to the water tank so that they could then have the, the scenes with the with the waves being thrown up onto it during the hurricane um they also built the dock out into the water tank with miniature boats further out in the water tank so it looked like the ocean i think it looks very convincing it's a phenomenal mm. set like if I'm, I'm like wondering of like in the time period of watching it in 1948 would you have seen oh yeah, this, this is the real florida keys and even like the the, hur- the hurricane scenes are phenomenal with what they do with it exactly yeah and i'm i'm not sure what houston I'm not sure Houston could have done it better on location because they they wouldn't have been able I to like, drop a tree through the wall of of some hotel they had rented in Florida. 
so going into shooting, uh, many of the cast were well acquainted at this point. This was the fifth and final on-screen collaboration between Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson. It was also notably the only time that Bogart received billing over Robinson in any of their films that they had oh, done wow. together. That makes and sense. And it was the fourth and final, uh, fourth and final film collaboration between Bogart and his wife Lauren Bacall. Bogart, who had come up under Robinson, but obviously was now viewed as his superior within the Hollywood studio system, uh, from all accounts was very defensive of Robinson on set. Um, there are accounts of Bogart insisting that, you know, the two of them being treated as equals, even though he was, I'm sure, number one on the call sheet and Robinson was number two. Um, and a lot of people said Bogart would be seen waiting outside Robinson's trailer to walk him to set so that the two of them would arrive at the same time. Wow. Bogart's a mensch. Yeah, but if I mean, if you go back and watch them through their careers, you know, Robinson was was huge in the 30s, and you can see oh, yeah. Bogart coming up in Robinson's movies. So yeah, yeah it's it's a pretty pretty incredible to see him then. Even though this feels like a two hander, and like we said, even even feels like Robinson might kind of dominate a little bit more. It's it's still you know this was a Bogart this was a Humphrey Bogart movie. Yeah, but Bogart's the guy who's going to survive in the end. Like that's yeah. the thing is that he's the hero who's got to stand up to the to the to the the gangster. Oh yeah, speaking speaking of the adaptation, that's something else. John Huston changed. Uh, McCloud did not survive the the trip to Cuba in the uh, in the play. And I and uh, here's the thing, and this might be the, of did anything not work, but like I did wonder, is the movie better if Bogart dies? I did wonder that. It's a much it's much more bleak ending. Yeah. I just want if if McCloud does die, I want I want um. I still want Lionel Barrymore to find out that Rocco's dead. I want, I want Lionel Barrymore to have that uh, that vindication at the end. <laughs> you were speaking earlier about the way that, that Houston shot the the singing scene with Claire Trevor. Um, so that that was kind of a a famous story of of actor manipulation. Um, Trevor was not a professional singer, and she was very nervous about doing the scene. Um, Houston says that she would repeatedly ask him to rehearse it with her. And he just kind of kept shrugging it off, shrugging it off. Yeah, we'll rehearse it later. We'll rehearse it later. Finally, the day they had this, the shot set up, he said, hey, Claire, let's let's rehearse one for the camera. This It's not going to be, let's go ahead and get one for the camera. And then we'll you and I will go off and do some rehearsing ourselves. So she said, okay. Uh, they shot it. And he said, cut, wrap, we're moving on. And uh, took the first the first take and that so that's what we're getting is the very first time she had practiced that song in front of anyone how do you feel about that like how do you feel about a director doing that i mean as far as director manipulations go there's there's been a lot worse <laughs> that's that's true that's true but you know that's that's one of those things and, and we don't have the whole story on that but if it you know I'm sure that she, especially in this period, I'm sure that she as an actress in Hollywood in the 1940s saw on paper, it says gay sings a song for everyone. I'm sure in her mind, it thought I need to have this pitch perfect. And I'm sure what Houston wanted was someone who hadn't sung in years, who was, you know, yeah, ha hasn't, is, is an alcoholic who hasn't had a drink in 24 hours. And it's not and it's gonna be nervous and shaken up and and so i'm, I'm sure that's what happened is is mm -hmm. and, I, and i the thing is sometimes in situations like that what it often comes to is it, it feels like a director doesn't respect the actor enough to think like oh if if he had sat her down and told her that's what he was looking for 
would she yeah, have yeah. given it to him? But at this point, we have no way of knowing, and we weren't there. Maybe he did try telling her that, and and yeah, yeah. It, and she still said, well, let's, I want to rehearse it, I want to rehearse it, I want to get it perfect, and and his whole thing was, I don't want it to be perfect. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, a lot of times I don't really, you know, that's an, a- an actor's job is to understand what the director is, is telling them, so a lot of times it does feel like you're kind of underestimating your actor if you use that kind of manipulation, but but here I, I see what he was going for. And like I said, it's it's not the most abusive example of of actor manipulation for sure. I think I think because I, I think I heard that she was very nervous because she was not just like singing on camera and she wasn't a singer, but she was doing it in front of Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, Lauren Bacall, and Lionel Barrymore. Yeah. Like Yeah, like, like like we said, this was a stacked cast and she was she was pretty low on the call sheet. Well go ahead, sing. Moaning low, my sweet man, I love him so. Though he's mean as can be, he's the kind of man, he's the kind of woman like me. Gonna die. If sweet man should pass me by, if I die, where will he be? He's the kind of man, needs the kind of woman like me. Shifting into awards and aftermath, the nerves paid off because the... uh... The film got one and only Academy Award nomination, and that was Claire Trevor for Best Supporting Actress, who went on to win it. And uh, a lot of critics uh, in the years since have credited that scene. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that's the scene that, that clinched it for her. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things like when we when we, uh, when we we talked about uh, Last Picture Show, and we talked about, yeah. you know, promising all those actors, like, if you do this, you're going to, this is your scene, you're going to win that Oscar for this scene. I think this... I yeah, think, you know, for better or for worse, Houston Houston knew that. When looking at old, like classic Hollywood, Golden Age of Hollywood stuff, and seeing the people who win Best Supporting Actor Actress, it really is a genuine like supporting character. If that makes sense, I mm-hmm. feel like nowadays sometimes it's the political aspect of hey, we don't want our two best people in the same category. Let's put one in supporting one in lead like in this era you're really seeing oh it's the fourth or fifth person on the call sheet getting supporting actor wins Mm. yeah Uh, supporting actor actors wins and and this performance and this character is also great you know we've like we've talked about the film fatale uh this is she's in this role where she is is you know washed up she's she seems kind of meek and feeble but she's ultimately the one who changes the tides yeah. And, and you, you find out afterwards that she's, you know, we're not sure how long she's been planning this, but she's known, she, she knew she was going to turn against Rocco at some point. And she's been kind of biding her time waiting for it to happen and, and saw McLeod as an opportunity to, to make it happen. And, and is ultimately the one who gets McLeod the gun, which allows him to, to be victorious in the end. And it's also immediately, as soon as, you know, Rocco's out of there, turns over, and is possibly going to take down the whole mob operation. So, 
yeah. kind of the person that emerges as, as the hero of it all. And to think, would she have been this role if it wasn't for Murder My Sweet? That's the that's the big question. <laughs> You're talking about Bogart in the box office. Um, the film performed very well in the box office. Mm-hmm. It earned around eight million dollars, which translates to about eighty-two million in uh, today's with inflation for today and uh landed at 12th overall in box office earnings for the entire year that year just kind of something interesting i turned up in my research about the box office was um when the film premiered in new york warner brothers worked out a promotional deal they called a flesh pick combo in which count basie and his orchestra and billy holiday performed 45 minute sets before every screening of the film weird for like a two-month period okay that's a interesting uh marketing plan and it, it actually if you go back and look one of the one of the supporting materials i sent you today is the was the original new york times review in the very bottom of the review there's this little thing about like yeah. count basie count basie and billy holiday are also there or something like that but yeah you got to go yeah do a i saw that and i was like what does this mean I, I tried looking up more examples of that marketing tool and i can't i couldn't really turn anything else up i, I, don't, I don't know why it kind of happened for this i'm sure i'm sure it wasn't the one and only time they had done this but um well, yeah a, so you know every night screening you go you get a 45 minute concert and then you get the movie so if you did that today granted we're in a weird thing because 2020 with movies but like I, I how i wonder how that would go like what's what's also interesting is that like jazz is not a big part of like key largo the movie so it feels just so weird to a concert that has no connection to the film whatsoever like mm. beforehand like it's, it's like it's like jack white gonna play before a christopher nolan movie or something like what's <laughs> like what's what's gonna happen like what's gonna be yeah i don't know i mean you're you're right it's not this doesn't feel like thematically it fits up it just seems like they they book they were able to book one of the biggest acts of the time and they yeah. were like let's let's i wonder how many people you had like like stand up and walk out after like count basie and billy holiday <laughs> are done playing you're like i don't care about this humphrey bogart movie i just wanted to to see a movie to see a concert for the price of a movie ticket like um, and that yeah and that counted for the box office that that counted for the box yeah. office of key largo <laughs> all right so uh so what worked for you in this film uh well the cast for one yeah. I, think the, I think the cast is phenomenal i i really don't think there's i mean i i, I do i agree with you of like larm bacall is underutilized because it's it's larm bacall uh and she doesn't get a lot mm-hmm. of Compared to everyone else in the movie, she doesn't get a lot of like big moments. That will probably go do anything that worked. But the cast, I think the cast overall has great chemistry. I think the visual style. I think Houston shoots it wonderfully. The sets are amazing. Yeah, that's what works for me. I mean, I agree with all that. I, and I, I think, like I said, I, I think it gives Robinson a great character to play with. I think it's one of, you know, it, it's Houston. And this is one of the, the really interesting things about Houston. Houston was a director kind of ahead of his time as far as like themes. And he was someone yeah. who could take what might seem as pretty standard studio fare and and dive a lot deeper into it than a lot of other writers or directors yeah. would have. And so what you what you get here is is, you know, Edward G. Robinson, who always played this like tough guy role. But in a movie that really, you know, brings him down and and dissects what it means to be a tough guy, especially in this era when the the mob was starting to kind of die off and we weren't looking up to these these huge gangster roles anymore. And then he also uh, takes Bogart, who's this Hollywood leading man, 
and also puts him in this role where it's like yeah this guy was was a hero he was you know a, a war hero and and this brave guy and, and now he's not anymore and so he really takes these these two kind of hollywood masculine roles and and dissects them in in a way that that takes away both of their powers and and dives a lot deeper into the psyche of both of them so you know it, it's not yeah i think that's houston's ability to to look a lot deeper than most of the studio fair was at the time yeah i think houston houston was known for being an avid reader and being able to like adapt the things that were unadaptable so he was able to look at things in a very unique and different way compared to everyone else at the time and he was able to, to lock down okay this is the heart of the story this is what i'm going to work from everything else might change mm-hmm. um so he's definitely trying to say things within the story he's crying if it's like like with example with the stuff he's changed in um uh in key largo it's like i mean it's interesting to have like bogart be a deserter but he's able to say you know what let's not make that a uh like a set out loud but you kind of have a hint that something is up with why Bogart acts the way he acts in this movie. And I wonder if that was in direction that he that Houston gave to Bogart. Yeah, yeah. You you can definitely see in a lot of these situations, and we, we've talked about this before in literature and play adaptations during the Hayes era, having to kind of hide you could, because a lot of the work outside of film was, was a lot deeper and darker than you were allowed to put to film, having mm-hmm. to kind of hide those themes within your script and within your movie. And a lot of times they were just kind of lost in, in adaptation in, in order to make something a little glossier that would pass the Hayes code and make money in, in Hollywood. But this is one of those examples when you, when you look at kind of the themes of the play. And like you said, at the idea of McLeod as a deserter, all of those things, themes still come through here that that idea of of being kind of selfish being cowardly and having to rediscover his his sense of bravery and his sense of service Uh, i mean you've also got we we haven't talked about it there's a subplot of um lionel barrymore's character being a friend and being very helpful to the indigenous community in the in the keys and being kind of looked down upon by everyone else for for caring for them and and that that ends up being like a really dark storyline he he Rocco keeps him from from being able to shelter this entire indigenous community that comes to him for help during the hurricane and he's like heartbroken yeah. because of it and i think that's that's also i talked a lot about the scene with the sheriff but that's i think Barrymore's best performance is having to take when the sheriff comes in and he says i you know i killed those Osceola boys and and their death is on your hands because you let them come take shelter here and barrymore just has to take it like he, he you know it's it's not his fault and he's and he's so upset that these these brothers were killed but he has to take it because he knows Rocco's going to kill that sheriff if he you know if he tries to bring it up and tell the truth um he, he's such a he's, he's a very caring person and um i, I barrymore is, is incredible he's you know, he could be the the nicest, friendliest old man, like uh, like in uh, uh, you can't take it with you. You know, he's just this like wonderful, kind, eccentric old man. Or he could be Mister Potter. You know, he could be yeah, this despicable villain. Um, he was he yeah. was really really incredible. 
and yeah and this one i think that that whole kind of subplot of everyone except for for him kind of having this disdain for the indigenous community and, and Rocco just being like lock him on the porch uh, you know that's it, it gets fairly political for for a 1948 studio film uh, he says at the end when when the i think the sheriff apologizes for what happened he's just like no like he goes even when we try to help them we hurt them is what yeah. he's saying that, yeah that, that line like struck me especially this time watching it was like wow i'm mighty grateful to you for saving my life and all but those two boys the osceolas I'd rather been killed and have innocent blood on my hands. Oh, I'm the one to blame. If they hadn't trusted me, they wouldn't have turned up here and they'd still be alive. It seems we can't do anything but harm to those people even when we go to help them. So did anything not work for you in this? I mean, as I s- said earlier, and I think you mentioned it, you mentioned it as well, is, is, is Lauren Bacall really needs to have more more to in yeah, this movie absolutely it is it's a severely underwritten role and um yeah like like i said you know i think it's still notable just in you know the those shots of her like looking at mcleod and like wanting so much more from mcleod you're like oh that you know i'm glad she's here because we get that chemistry but that yeah that that role needs more for sure yeah and i said i do wonder is the movie better if bogart dies at the end that's why i do wonder but as I think it said in one of the articles you sent about like it's the kind of the perfect movie for like a post World War II America, where like Bogart, as is in Casablanca, he is kind of this American surrogate. He he kind of represents America as a whole, and so you need a little bit of a yeah things things happen there, but we still need to be like who we are and stand up for what's right no matter what it is yeah and he ultimately gets the victory over the kind of fading crime families and and that that aspect of of america and and so yeah i don't know thematically i don't know if that would have dramatically yeah i think it would have been more interesting dramatically um but thematically i think yeah he has to kind of survive to hit home what houston was aiming for here yeah no i agree some scenes do get a little too talky. I feel. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if you if you can if you can find a what which Houston I think would probably be upset with this. Uh, if you can find a way to cut like ten minutes out, it might play a little better. I don't know. <laughs> it drags a little bit early on to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so. I I feel that when they're when they're kind of in Rocco's like bedroom or his his room up there. Yeah. It, it does get a little bit in be, in between the the shaving scene which you said like you said is great and the the part the part with the gun there's some just kind of like you're a rocco and he's ah, i used to be great and and you're just like all right let's 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 keep this moving and and yeah. i think once they once they open it up into the lobby and the hurricane starts roaring yeah i think you're i think you're set from there i agree completely so i only have one i only have one alternate universe universe cast for us today um mm-hmm. Houston originally wanted Charles Boyer for Rocco. Um, but the studio told him absolutely not. Boyer is, is box office poison. And uh, made him get Robinson. Um, this was this would have been four years after Gaslight. And as, as we kind of see with mm-hmm. character actors who then get like a huge hit, I feel like everyone was wanted to put Boyer in everything after Gaslight came out. And he was kind of starting yeah. to wane by 1948 I, w- I would kind of compare it to the way that uh you know 
it's Christoph Waltz and his like green hornet water for elephants period I feel like (laughs) (laughs) I think it's interesting that he that he would have wanted Boyer for this because it feels like I said it feels like it's written for Robinson it feels like it's written as a way to cap off Robinson's career as a gangster so yeah that, that was I was surprised to see that one um but some other interesting facts the boat in the film that humphrey bogart takes to uh takes to cuba is called the santana which is named after bogart's own yacht which he purchased from flashback to last episode dick powell oh my god (laughs) okay dick powell in turn had purchased it from ray milland it was a um three three generation hand-me-down yacht. wow the ray milland play a detective at some point (laughs) <laughs> but did yeah he, they, they should have named it the they should have named it the marlowe doesn't need to get he to play marlowe at any point in his career <laughs> you may have noticed i thought of this as someone from hurricane country i noticed that nobody called the hurricane by name during the movie yeah and and looked it up only to realize that uh the noaa didn't start the hurricane naming conventions until five years after this movie in 1953 at this point wow they did Wh- not have names what's the What's the what's the first hurricane name? Oh, I don't know. I, I did not pull that. <laughs> uh, but they were originally in, in, in some in some patriarchal uh, sexist history for like twenty years. They were only named female names, and then somebody was like, "Hey, oh man, we could these could be guys too." These devastating <laughs> storms can also be named after men. Uh, in the film, McLeod specifically tells Nora about serving with her husband in the Battle of San Pietro. Um, this was at Houston wrote this into the script because it was a battle he had witnessed personally while filming documentary footage for the army's motion picture unit. Um, one of the documentaries he produced was called San Pietro. Harry Lewis, who played Toots, the, uh, the youngest of the gangsters. Yeah. I just saw he has that line where the, the cops says the lights went out on me and Toots goes, and I was the electrician. <laughs> <laughs> um, Houston was not happy with Harry Lewis's performance and put a lot. He says he put much of his effort in directing into um, providing Lewis with business and mannerisms that would make him stand out on screen, including coming up with this kind of high pitched laugh that he has throughout. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Lewis would go on to say that Houston was the only director who had ever put much effort at all into one of his performances as a career character actor. Wow. But Lewis would, Perhaps not the most talented character actor, Lewis would go on to be best known as the founder of successful fast food franchise, the Hamburger Hamlet. That's that's crazy. Which has since gone out of business. Uh, let's see. Felipa Gomez, the indigenous actress who is described as being 120 years old in the film, was actually born in 1870. She was 78 at the time of filming and lived to be 97. Wow. I gotta say, she doesn't look great for 78. She, she doesn't. She's got she's got a very worn face. Yeah. A very yeah. worn face. At one point in the movie, as Rocco, Edward G. Robinson says that he's being thrown out of the country like a dirty red or something. Just one year after Key Largo's release, Robinson would be brought in front of the House on American Affairs Committee. And though he was regarded as a friendly witness, was still gray listed as a communist for most of the 1950s. We, we talked about that last week. We did. We did. And Houston, I'm, I'm reading this right now. Houston moved to Ireland during this time. Because of his disgust at the witch hunt and moral rot, mm-hmm. uh, that sounds like a that's a, moral rot is a very John Houston phrase. <laughs> that that seems like a very John Houston phrase. Uh, something a little a little more topical. Um, 
if you think if you think fake news revolving around the election on the internet is a recent development (laughs) in 2000 during the election recounts that decided the election in florida a chain email started going around claiming that the movie key largo had predicted the future or perhaps exposed a vast conspiracy quoting rocco as telling mcleod let me tell you about florida politicians i make them out of whole cloth just like a tailor makes a suit i get their name in the newspaper i get them some publicity and get them on the ballot then after the election we count the votes and if they don't turn out right we recount them and recount them again until they do and so everyone shared this around going the the key largo exposed it this is exactly what's happening in florida but that was not a real quote from the movie the actual quote does not mention florida politicians at all he does not say the word florida in that quote and uh and what he says is um i get my boys to bring the voters out and then count the votes over and over again until they added up right and he was elected so the phrase recount was specifically also added to this fake quote to make it seem more topical so uh, the moral of the story is don't believe everything you see on the internet <laughs> that's what abraham lincoln said right didn't lincoln exactly. say that exactly and if you see a quote from Key Largo, maybe maybe just go watch it. Go watch it for yourself before you spread the uh, before you spread the quote. Yeah. Around. Uh, Brandon, you have any story questions from this movie, other than should McCloud have died? All right, I have one question, and maybe it's just me because we we talk about the Hayes Code and production code a lot in this. Mm-hmm. Did Bogart and George, who's the son of Barrymore and and, and husband of Bacall? Did they have some sort of uh, intimate relationship together? Because Bogart oh. knows some stuff that feels very like they were they were real tight for a commanding officer and a, yeah, um, that, you know that's a great question. It's like he's he's talking about like oh like oh yeah like when you were when he was a kid Barry, or to, to his dad like you touched his uh, mouth and said that's where the dent comes from of an angel touching the mouth and taking away all the secrets of life or whatever <laughs> and then it, I was just like okay that's a very specific story to tell someone who's your commanding officer I don't know. and then Maybe he says you just get bored when you're deployed and you don't have that much to talk about. <laughs> And then it's like, oh yeah, he talked about you all the time in the letters. I was like, are they having like an affair, like <laughs> over in the wherever they're at? I'm just that that, that popped to me. I don't know. Does uh does McLeod stay at the hotel once he gets back? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and if he does, how long is it before the call and Barrymore start accidentally calling him George? <laughs> Oh man! See, I think Barrymore dies like within a year. That's the thing. I don't. I don't know. Oh man, George. Is like just my like heart never wants left. to say. <laughs> yeah, my my heart wants to say Bogart stays and Barrymore dies a little bit later, and Bacall and Bogart are running the hotel together. That's what I want to say happens. Mm. But I don't know. Yeah, Bogart seems like a drifter. I don't know. I think he could be going somewhere. I and, mean, and and and. Gay Dawn is doing the floor show. Yeah, that would make total sense, man. <laughs> Bo- they they actually could like, man. That's like they make Key Largo a popping tourist spot. Like they have a huge nightclub, nightclub band with 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 Gay with Gay Dawn. What a name uh, to be the mm-hmm. lead singer. Um, I I'm totally in on this. Oh, I forgot one more one more. I guess interesting fact. Um, 
Though uncredited, Jay Silverheels plays one of the Osceola brothers who would go on two years later to be cast as Tonto in the Lone Ranger series. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Let's, it's time to give out some awards. Okay. What's the, uh, the Beatrice Strait Award for an actor or actress with limited scenes that kills it? This is a tough one. Because, like, everyone's, like, so many people are in this movie for a long period of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would the would the henchman count as Beatrice Strait? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you any of the henchmen. Because I'm contemplating. They're, they're around, but they don't have a lot of lines. Yeah, I'm contemplating Curly, who's uh, who's play who's the uh, heavy set guy, who's the one who's all who's uh, he's the one who has talked about prohibition. I think he might have been like mm-hmm. uh, Rocco's like old kind of henchman. Mm-hmm. And I do like the sheriff. Those are kind yeah. of my two nominees. I'm I'm gonna go with the sheriff. Uh, I've okay. gone on and on. At this point, I think everyone knows how I feel about that scene, but <laughs> he's he's great for what he does. I love that when he's introduced earlier on, and Barrymore's like, "I haven't seen the Osceola Boys," and he's like, "Your word's good enough for me. Let's go." <laughs> I mean, so his name's Monty Blue. What a name! Mm-hmm. Yeah, he 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 started working the 1910s. Wow, and then worked until the 1950s. Good old Monty Blue. Good job, Monty Blue. Are you going curly? Are we? Are we gonna? I'll go. I'll go. I'll go with the sheriff. I like Monty Blue as the sheriff. I think he is good. Congratulations, Monty Blue, on your on your Beatrice Strait Award. He's dead. Your Indians murdered Sawyer. You lied to me, Temple. You said you hadn't seen the Osceolas. You lied, didn't you? I knew Sawyer had been here. That's why he called me. Cause he'd found the Osceolas. They thought they could hide it by sinking his body, but they couldn't. The storm tore his body loose and threw it out. Right at your door. And that's where the crime belongs, at your door. You probably knew they killed Sawyer. I wouldn't put it past you. And I'm going to lay charges, naming you as accessory. What was the shooting? The Osceolas, they tried to get away. I killed them both. All right, the Annie Potts X Factor Award for supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. Okay, this one is actually tough. Because uh, here's the question. <laughs> Is Edward G. Robinson supporting or is he lead? He's lead. I'm not giving. I, I'm not giving you that. Okay, cool. That's I, too I, easy. I'm not. I'm not saying it's Edward G. I'm just saying I want to know the clarification here on that. Even even though he was billed under. Uh, actually, that's interesting. If you start looking into this, the drama about him being billed under Bogart, some theaters apparently there's there's pictures that exist of some theaters when they were sent the 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 like the poster or the way to bill it on their marquee. They uh-huh. were like, no, there's, n- there's no way, and they like, bro- even though it's, it was specifically said like bill it like this, they would bill it Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart in. They were like, no, nah, there's no way, like it's Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> um, so th- th- there was actually like, it was pretty scandalous that that had happened on this one. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. Well, then, then I guess I'm gonna go with Claire Trevor. I mean, you gotta, you gotta side with the Academy. I picked Claire Trevor two times in a row. <laughs> Uh, this has turned into Claire Trevor month on uh, in the Nation. <laughs> yeah, so w- do we rena- rename the X Factor Award Claire Trevor X Factor Award? <laughs> no, gotta, gotta, I will not stand Potts. for this Annie Potts erasure. <laughs> yeah, I think Claire Trevor. I think I think the song the song scene song for a dr- or a song for a drink kind of again puts her over. My gowns were gorgeous, always low cut, very décolleté. I wore hardly any makeup, just some lipsticks, that's all. No lights, just a baby spot. 
I wouldn't have any entrance. They'd they'd play the intro in the dark, and and a spot would come on, and, and there I'd be. Yeah, and then the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie. It's Edward G. Robinson. Oh, uh, you're not no Houston. You're you're not gonna. Oh, that's oh, son of a. This is tough. What 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 are you thinking? What are you thinking? I think it's Edward G. Robinson, but I, I just wanted to throw I wanted to throw Houston in there. You made me think. Um, I think I I think because John Houston did so many great movies, I I think this is this is probably not in like his top three or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is in the to- towards the top of for Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, I think we're like yeah. this, this, and like Double Indemnity or uh, Little Caesar. I think this is up there. So I'll go with Edward G. Robinson for the MVP award. Yeah, I back you on that. Great job, Edward G. Robinson, for being the MVP of Key Largo. Yeah, that's me. Sure, I was all of those things, and more. When Rocco talked, everybody shut up and listened. What Rocco said went. Nobody was big as Rocco. It'd be like that again, only more so. I'll be back up there one of these days, and then you're going to really see something. Final questions. I love I love putting you on the spot for this one. Um, <laughs> all right. You're remaking Key Largo today. Who do you cast? All right. Okay. I got a couple people. Who do you want first? Uh, give me Rocco. This one might be a little on the nose. I'm going to say Paul Giamatti. Okay. All right. I like that. I, I, something about Paul Giamatti in that role would make sense to me. I like that. Yeah, he can be he can be sad. He can be scary. Yeah. 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 Back that. All right. All right. Uh, how about McLeod? Oh man. Okay. Do you want older or younger? Because this is my issue: is that Bogart is a big gap between Bacall. So I have like a <laughs> I have like a thirty year old one, and then I have a forty year old person. I'd never believe them as a couple in real life. <laughs> I know exactly. That's my thing. I'm sorry. Or they? She was she was 19 and he was 45 when they got married. Yes, that's a big gap. That's a big gap. Yeah. And I and 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 nowadays you can't put that in a movie. You can't put that in a movie and make that believable to me. Uh, here are my two picks. One's a little. One's just I'm biased towards, uh, and that's Shia LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like a guy who's been to war, coming back a little lost. Looking for like some purpose, Shia LaBeouf. Also, a guy who's like, I'm gonna stand for myself and no one else, Shia LaBeouf. Uh, my other, my backup one, a little bit older, John Bernthal. Ooh, ooh, I like that. Yeah. Here's here's the thing that I'll say on the on the age difference in a lot of Bacall and Bogart's movies. Bacall always played up, like like it was it was never they never said it. But like in yeah, Have and Have Not, Lauren Bacall is not playing a nineteen-year-old. Like she's she's not nineteen in that movie. She's like mid twenties. No, yeah, yeah, I agree. So I I would go. I would go Burnthal. Okay. Between the two, I'd I'd go a little bit older for him, having been like a major in the army and and just age up, just actually make whoever you cast for for her character actually closer to his age. All right, we gotta keep going. Let's give give me give me uh, Lionel Barrymore. Okay, this is tough as well. Uh, I went with Jeff Bridges. Oh, oh, oh my! <laughs> um, I like that. I like that. It's like because like I don't want to go too. I mean, Christopher Plummer was another guy I thought of, but I wonder if he's too old for it. I like I like Bridges. I what if you 
like made him a little bit more like like leaned into the dudeness of it a little bit and and made him like you know a florida like like you just lean, make it a little bit more florida like give it some yeah. more of that florida flavor yeah i could see that i could see that yeah two more i was gonna bacall and 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 gay dom yeah, yeah. and the other which, two which um, one do you want first uh give me bacall we'll save gay dom for last because okay. because i have three people for gay dom uh nora i went with mary elizabeth winstead a favorite favorite of the podcast <laughs> can't go wrong yeah, I just think I think she could pull it off because it's like it, it, it's it's again she's about it's a little bit older than Bacall for sure. I wanted that, and I was like, who also I could see as like being like a, a care a person who would come in and like basically take over like a business for like her father in law of like possibly mm. a person she was married to for a very short time. Uh, and I think you could also someone because Bacall does stand up to to Rocco at one point. And I yeah, think she's fierce. I mean, she's yeah. an extremely fierce person. And I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead would, would capture that incredibly well. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I just, I, yeah, like I said, I mean, Bacall's great in the role. It's not underperformed at all. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it is a supporting role. Like it does, she does not really have an arc. Her character doesn't really change that much in the film. Mm-hmm. And because you have someone like Bacall there, you feel like it should. And, and yeah, I, I would back yeah casting that up and then just finding finding an arc there to give her for sure yeah all right gay dawn our last last but not least the academy award-winning role of gay dawn i'm i'm throwing some out here over here okay that these are some some of these are wild picks uh first up katherine hahn okay i like that that's a that's my curb that's my wild pitch right there that's my uh mm-hmm. against type i'm always down with katherine hahn and i think because i saw what was the she did uh is it Miss Fletcher? What was the HBO sh- show she just did yeah, about yeah, a year yeah. ago? Yeah, th- she's really good. It's and that's kind of that's kind of like a dramedy type thing. But I think I think Kevin Hahn could play it well. My next person, cause she's more in line with the age of of Claire Trevor when she played it. Um, uh, Kirsten Dunst. I've, I'm always down for Kirsten Dunst and anything as well. So I'd back that. Does she have that show about Florida? That was one reason why I did it. That's one reason why I did it. <laughs> It was. It just got canceled. It just got canceled. I think so. Oh no. Maybe she'll. Maybe she'll do it. And my last pick, Tandy Newton. Okay. Yeah, I think she'd be. I think she'd definitely bring the vulnerability to it. Um. Yeah, those are all great. I think you have to play with like the like because Tandy Newton makes more sense like as like a washed up singer. She could play. I think she could play that very well. Of like mm-hmm. almost made it but didn't because of the booze basically. So I think any of those three for me. Are very very different, yeah. But I think could bring something interesting to the role. Yeah, I'd watch. I'd watch it with any of them in it for sure. Did you have any picks? Uh, no, I, I don't. <laughs> I was I was I was just excited for yours. I would I would I would totally watch that. Maybe we can stage. Maybe we can stage a play. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Yeah, this was one. I spent a lot of time on the in this cast, Thomas. Very much so. Was thinking all night last night about this cast. <laughs> i'm very i'm very happy with it i back it i back it i'd watch this uh so for you know another entry in uh in our noir category does this movie fit in with any other genres uh most definitely i mean for one it's also kind of a gangster movie um mm-hmm. even though they're not like doing they're not doing fully gangster things it's definitely the the florida noir type thing which is is, is a sub genre of the of the noir genre 
Um, it's not. It's not really like a. I don't know how to put this in like a genre. Like, because it weirdly, it's not a murder mystery, but it plays like a like a like a murder like a like a chamber piece type. Like again, because it's based on a play of just like what's going to happen here. Yeah. Um, I read that Houston called this a locked door story where okay. the hurricane is the lock. Okay. That makes sense. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're all, they're all trapped in there together and, and it's just all of the drama that unfolds with these people who should not be interacting. Yeah. Uh, being forced to interact with each other. Yeah. It's, it's a great premise. That's the one thing about that. I love. It's a great premise of like, yo, you're locked in a hotel with people. You don't want to be, be around because of a hurricane. And what are you more scared of? The people in the room or the hurricane outside? It's a perfect, perfect way to wrap up hurricane season. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's one, <laughs> literally one about to hit Florida right now. So or, or, or when I think, I think when this podcast releases, it will be making landfall on Florida. So stay safe out there, guys. Oh man. So, so finishing up, you know, this is more November. How does this film fit in the noir genre specifically? So uh, the visual style specific, like it, it carries through with the noir genre as as the movie progresses, it becomes more noir driven with the very heavy shadows and kind of silhouette light lighting they they do silhouette shots. Um, Carl Freud does a great job of kind of like capturing the noir noir style. You have it's not you don't have a femme fatale. But as we talked about in the last episode about like two women who are kind of pulling your lead character in a certain way, that is present a little bit in this movie where you have Claire Trevor and Bacall kind of trying to pull Bogart a certain way. Like specifically the scene that comes to mind is when they're trying to convince him like not to go or what to do when he's going off to Cuba with Edward mm-hmm. G. Robinson um so you have that i mean you you know we brought it up before you've got the the crime aspect the yeah the even though there's there's not really a detective you do have that kind of law law and order clash here um bringing up mm-hmm. you know our beatrice straight award winner the the sheriff um yeah, yeah but yeah and you also have you know this is one we, we've we've talked about a little bit but kind of you know the beleaguered antagonist this guy it, it's so often someone who is is like we said and has has a past history of being a hero but at this point is just looking out for number one and, yeah. and it's it's so often the journey in these movies that that they've got to learn to to look out for somebody other than themselves and so that that definitely feels like a staple of the genre for sure no i agree completely there you go is that all key largo that's that's key largo montego baby why don't we go <laughs> Is that the worst uh, Beach Boy song? Yes, one hundred percent. Thanks so much, Cocktail, for for giving us that song. Oh, is it in Cocktail? I still it was written for Cocktail. Oh, was yeah. it? Oh man, I yeah. did not know that. And that, that was like like they had already disbanded. Like it was, it's not a real Beach Boy song, is the thing. Like they they were already like disbanded, and they got back together to do this song for for Cocktail. Oh, that's terrible. I didn't know that. I remember I, it was like in like a sidetrack that might get cut. It was in like a Muppets video. I remember <laughs> that's how I found out about Kokomo was it was a Muppets video. Anyway, 
that's all we have for this episode. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're on. Keep those five-star reviews coming. And if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch a lot of film noir this week, That's all, or this month. That's all I gotta say. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Happy, happy November. Happy November. And thank you all for listening. Bye.